This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, my homie, to part two of this mind-blowing episode about narcissists with the queen of identifying and helping women like you listening escape narcissistic behaviors, my girl, Dr. Romani. Now, if you're constantly feeling gaslighted, thinking that you're going crazy, and maybe even convinced that maybe you're overreacting to nothing, listen up. The second part of this conversation with Dr. Romney can be absolutely life-changing when you are tired of suffering and ready to actually make a change and live your best life, the one you absolutely freaking deserve. And this insightful conversation uncovers the nerve of narcissistic partners who weaponize your shame just to maintain control over you. And my girl, Dr. Romney, reveals self-reflection is absolutely critical in breaking free from manipulative tactics of narcissists. So by the end of today's episode, guys, I want you to have a little more knowledge and at least one more freaking tool in your belt to become so much stronger so that you can absolutely identify the emotional abuse. So let me know what you thought of this episode. Leave a rate and a review. You have no idea how much that actually makes a difference. I know everyone says it. I know everyone always asks for a rate and review, so I don't want this to actually fall on deaf ears. But the truth is, guys, it really does make a difference. So if this episode brings you value, my homie, please drop a review and a comment and let me know what you think. Now, let's dive in with my girl, Dr. Romani. Yeah, that's what I mean about the romance, mm-hmm. romanticizing. And mm-hmm. recently, actually, I got asked the question. It was like, I think, on an IG live. And the question was, you know, I have been verbally abused by my ex and time and time again, I finally left and now I miss him what do I do? And the very first thing I said is go check out Dr. Roman and stuff. Um, but that was very interesting to me, to your point of how so many of us will hold on to the bad. But when it comes to a relationship, for some reason, we do remember the that one magical moment or that one way, because in the question, actually, she was like, he used to say how pretty I was, mm-hmm. you know? And so my, my response was, well, how do you build your validation within yourself so that you're not seeking it from outside sources? And I'd go deeper than that. I'd say, why? where do you think this message of prettiness became so important to you? Mm. You know, for some people, it might have been like I, many people have said, I was safest with a certain parent when they thought I was pretty. You know, I was the apple of their eye when I was pretty. Some people say my parent loved me until I got to an awkward stage and then they weren't interested in me because I wasn't pretty anymore. Um, I felt safe because someone thought I was pretty. My, my identity and my family. So it's, it's, it's more of not even so much how you talk to yourself is why does this hold such weight for you? Because it wouldn't hold weight for me. If somebody told me I'm pretty, I'm like, that's not even interesting to mm. me. You know, tell me I'm smart. I might actually turn my head, 
right? Because that's that's a characteristic that matters more to me. But the attractiveness piece doesn't. Mm. I don't care that mattered to her. So I'd want to say like that. We've got to pull this thing up from the roots because that. And he had it. He had that thing. And then that, that's what the trauma building often builds on is that one seed of something. It's a, what we call a correction, right? It's a correction from the past. That's why I remember many times people will say, you know what? This narcissistic person was so financially responsible. All his finances, so had investments. It was so, and, I, and they said, I came from a family where my parents were ridiculously irresponsible with money. We'd get evicted and all that. So they were drawn to that incredible sense of financial responsibility, but the person was very mm. abusive. But that sense of, res- in some cases, it's pretty. In some cases, it's responsibility. In other cases, it's um, piety, like being very faith-based. In some cases, it might be um, being physically strong. Whatever a person, sometimes we're, you know, they say we crave the foods that we don't, with the, we crave the foods that have the nutrients we're lacking. Mm-hmm. I think something similar happens in narcissistic relationships. Ooh. So is there not really one type of characteristic then a narcissist will look for in a partner? Will it would be dependent? I think a narcissistic person, above all else, is looking for supply and status. Those are the things they want, right? Now, supply comes through so many different routes. So somebody might choose supply because they know they could dominate someone easily. So they may choose someone who's like, well, a person's not that fancy or flashy. I'm like, yeah, but... They're going along with everything they say. So that's their source of supply. So the supply is a universal. Um, you know, being in control is a universal. Status is universal. And that status might come from, look at me, I'm the big person in this relationship. Mm. Their status is someone else will pick a very beautiful partner because they want to be seen around town with someone beautiful. Someone else might choose someone of tremendous wealth because there's a status or went to a certain school or whatever it is. Because that's what they're seeking. But for the narcissistic person, they're looking for those things. They choose their partners on that basis. Mm. And when they, once they realize early on, they can, they can get away with stuff. Because if you set a limit with a narcissistic person early, early in the relationship, they're going to walk. They're not going to be interested. So would that be one characteristic, someone who doesn't actually set limits? I would say not even set limits as much as might, um, laugh, uh, laugh aside the, the gaslight. The invalidating comment. And, you know, listen, you know, Matthew Hussey, you know, friend mm-hmm. to both of us, you know, him and I have had this conversation and, you know, Matthew says, and I think it's very wise. He's like, you can't spend the first few dates in a relationship just looking for red flags. You also simply have to be in it and no one's going to get it right. Like you can't just be on the edge of your state saying, nope, nope. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be that. It's not like job interview, <laughs> but it's the, let's say in a more simple, simple way, it would be a person, um, Someone's trying to rush sex, okay? They're saying, oh, come on, you're so sexy in your text, babe. Like, I, I know you want, I know you want. You're saying, listen, you know, don't step in, you step back. Don't touch me like that. Like, oh, come on, you talk a tough game. And they're getting into your space sexually. And you're like, stop, drop me off. I'm out of here. I'm not having sex with you, right? I'm not, and, and I'm really offended at how you treated me. If it's early on, they might try to hoover you back in. Oh, you misunderstood. You misunderstood. If you can really stand your ground and say, I said stop multiple times. You didn't listen. Like, this didn't feel comfortable. They'll probably say, you're a tease. You're this. You're that. And then it'll be over. And you will not hear from them again. Right? But if you wait if you wait in it and saying, okay, well, I'm not going to relent. But And then you fall for the, they apologize, apologize, apologize. And you're like, okay, well, I guess they see it now. If you could take those early fails as fails, and set a really hard standard then. Some people say, oh, but you're going to let some good ones get away. You know what? It's worth it. There's mm. other fish. 
But to be honest, I think if you're setting a boundary and someone doesn't respect your boundary and then you repeat your boundary and they still don't respect it, that's not a good one that you're letting get away. It's not. But I think the problem is, is that for many people, they feel guilt when they set boundaries, right? Setting boundaries mm. is fraught with guilt. Who am I? I don't have the right. They were told as a kid, what are you talking about? Boundaries, we're a family, you should blah, blah, blah. So people get very mixed messages. And so it's hard for them. And if they did were to set the boundary and the other person came hat in hand apologizing like, I'm so sorry, you're so gorgeous, I couldn't. Now all of a sudden the message starts getting very confused. And a lot of people feel like, gosh, I'm being really rigid. They're apologizing so much. And that's it. Then that person now knows they're going to be able to always play this game with you. But then, I mean, I think that in that situation, if that was me, I would say, okay, maybe that was one time, like give them the grace. And then the second time, eh, the third time, it's a pattern. Right, right. And so I think that that, that's, you know, I think the first time is a very hard, hard bar to set, but that person's going to switch tactics. Mm. They now know that play didn't work. So they're going to try something new. Um, do you, recently I've heard about people talking about like basically um, recognizing and identifying your own red flags mm-hmm. and I actually found this interesting of like because you even said right well the narcissist will prey on somebody depending on what they're seeking right mm-hmm. if they um, find their own validation in someone that's wealthier then that's what they're going to go after but if you're somebody who maybe has been in a relationship with somebody like that would you suggest in marking down what where you maybe went wrong what were the things that you spotted in hindsight mm-hmm. that you could have done differently and then almost marking them as your own personal red flags yeah, I mean, I, I, yes, absolutely. I think that you're, again, something I've talked about is this idea of there are red flags and then there are the red flags that are very specific to you, mm. okay? And those, the red flags, warning signs, call them what you will, the bespoke ones as you were, the ones that are yours are going to come from your history, um, how you've gone through the world, how you've been affected by people, your expectations, your beliefs, all of it. And that's why not all are created the same. For one person texting at the table would be absolutely not I'm out but someone else would be like that's modern times I do it that's fine by me so that's not going to feel like a red flag to them and that's fine you know Mm -hmm. I mean I think that they'll say they could text at the table all the days of my life it'll never bother me and so that that person's registering it differently right for some people anything that even has a whiff of cheating for example or betrayal they're out like immediately some they find out someone's still talking to their ex they're out whatever for other people that's not so much their thing so I think that there's definitely that piece of it, that these things that are warning signs are very personal, right? Mm-hmm. To your point about writing things down, I think it's it's never a bad idea because here's the thing. Once a person's been through a narcissistic relationship that's on its last legs, even if they stay with the person, they'll say, these were the signs I saw, right? And 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 some of them are very subtle. And this is where, again, Matthew and I are in tremendous agreement over this, is that a person could drive themselves mad thinking, there was a rest. how did I miss them? I said, this is an easy story to tell backwards. You know, it's almost like, well, I could have, I could have told you that character who came up in the first 10 seconds was going to be the killer after you saw the end. <laughs> you know, I mean, I want you to stop watching the damn movie after 10 seconds knowing this is the murderer. You have to watch it like, oh, now it all makes sense. Of course it makes sense. So it's the same thing. Now you've seen the end of the movie. So all the pieces connect quite nicely. Mm. But for, there's very few people who would say, I should have known this would have ended up in a disaster. They sent me a dozen roses. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, like, that's wacky. Now, it's, I understood now that we have all the other data 
the dozen roses made sense. They sent the dozen roses as a way to make up for some weird, some weird comment they made. You may not, that may not have been clear to you at the time. So again, you have all the data when it's done. So these so-called red flags, some are bigger than others. I think there's a tremendous utility though in writing them down, writing down the things that when this happened, this made me uncomfortable. This made me uncomfortable. This made me uncomfortable. And as they pile up, you'll definitely see like, oh, if you did this over multiple, if you God help someone, if they had multiple toxic relationships, and I'd say, this is a mistake I kept doing. Sometimes Lisa, it's very simple things. People who might've grown up in, with narcissistic parents who never felt good enough. And they'll say, every time the thing that I never would have thought was a red flag was that this person paid a lot of attention to me. And they said, because they paid attention to me, I was actually missing this other stuff that was setting the toxic groundwork. I, I missed that they were abrupt with the servers, or I missed that they kind of made some dismissive comments about where my friends lived. And that stuff was unnecessary, but they paid attention to me. This is why sort of knowing ourselves becomes so important. Because then we know if a person does this, this is my, this is my thing. And when this is happening, I may actually, my vision might get blurry about that other stuff. That's why we need to know that about what, what sort of, what, what needs we have that are, again, corrections from the past that might make us vulnerable to, again, blurring out some of the other stuff. But also I tell people, you need to write down all the terrible things that happened in the relationship. As gross as that feels, sometimes seeing it in one place, you're like, oh, this is why I need to not go back. Some people, though, say if they do that, they feel terrible about themselves and say, why did I put up with all of this? So mm. it's tricky. That's true. Yeah, and then I'm just going to add to, you know, if someone gets you a dozen flowers, red roses, like, that's just sometimes a nice gesture. It's and you don't nice want gesture, it to be like, right. well, they're, they're yeah. love bombing mm -hmm. me right. and see, right. well, you can spot thing. it immediately mm -hmm. and now they're gone. Yeah. Like there's such a fine line, even as we're talking about like, you know, the flags and stuff where it's, um, you know, it can be tricky because sometimes it can actually come from somewhere sweet, kind and genuine. But if you've had a bad experience, you can interpret That's that it. as being a manipulative tactic. Correct. So where somebody might say, my my narcissistic ex sent me roses all the time. Now this person sent me roses. I'll forget. I'm out. I'll yeah. say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can we talk about what else has been happening? I'll say, and they're talking about someone who's been kind, consistent, predictable, warm, respectful. I bet. Okay. I think that, you know, they say Freud's sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes, you know, sometimes these things are just what they are. Roses is a rose or whatever. It's not that big a deal. It's, we can sometimes, this is why red flag conversations are so dangerous because mm -hmm. it can put us focus on one thing and we miss the whole context. Yeah. Talk to me about the D's, the dark personalities that you've recently been speaking about, um, where it's, uh, you talk about um, where it's a personality traits, I believe. Like the dark triad and yes. the dark tetrad. Yeah. So one of the challenging things about narcissism and, you know, everyone's using the word is that they talk about narcissism and they treat it like it's synonymous with psychopathy and the same as sociopathy and blah, blah, blah. Personality researchers struggle with this too, right? These things don't just sort of, it's not like there's these distinct cuts between all of these things. So there are researchers out there who are looking at these, maybe even at the nature, not evil is a strong word, but like really bad, cruel, mean, difficult personality styles. And what they found was originally the theory was called the dark triad. And it was, um, it was made up of narcissism, psychopathy, 
and something called Machiavellianism, which is really being exploitative and willing to use other people for your own advantage, right? And what the researchers found was that these things hang together. People, these traits kind of all hang together and it results in a person who is unempathic, cold, callous, calculating, often superficially very intelligent and charming, um, willing to make a relationship with someone and then sort of use them and for whatever they need them and then sort of abandon them, right? The researchers then expanded that theory a little further to something called the dark tetrad. So they kept the psychopathy, the narcissism, and the Machiavellianism, and they added something called sadism to the mix. So the intentional the intentional infliction of harm on someone and kind of it feels good for to harm someone. So it's dark. It's dark. That's why it's called the dark tetrad. So when these traits hang together, we see a, when we talk about malignant narcissism, it tends to be more of that, like really almost intentionally harmful, revenge-seeking, um, manipulative and cruel um, and yet charming and all that stuff. Um, th- there's that famous story of Dirty John. And it was a um, it was an LA Times um, series. It was when podcasts were just beginning. Everyone was hooked, hooked. And it was basically the story of a woman, um, uh, Deborah Newell, who met a, she was in her 50s. She met a guy, charming, charismatic, handsome, everything she wanted to be. And, you know, She's totally into him and um, red flags everywhere. Her kids didn't like her. Kids were adults. Her kids didn't like him, but still they move in together. Within two months, it was very clear something terrible, terrible about this guy and manipulative and awful and dangerous. The whole story. So within two months, she was already having to live on the lamp. She was having to like move every three days. She knew how harmful he was. Um, and then the whole story culminates in that he um, he knew that some of her family members were naysaying him. So he was going to try to kill, he's going to try to kill her daughter, Tara. And um, Tara killed him, Tara in self-defense. But that guy, um, John Meehan, the man she was in a relationship with, was a perfect example of a dark tetrad. And so just, it was evil all the way down. And yet charming, charismatic, attractive. She felt special. She felt seen. I mean, enough so that she obviously pulled him into her life. And the challenge with the whole story was there was a real tendency to want to depict Deborah as foolish. But really the story to me was, this is how the manipulativeness, if you didn't know what this was, how easy it was. And back in 2017, that was only six years ago. We weren't talking about narcissism the way we are now. I had, I think my first book had already just come out, but it still was sort of a, a, a small hoofbeat in this whole conversation. But that's probably one of the more classical examples of a dark tetrad person who we've sort of heard about. And then since then, there have been a lot others. Others have come up in the media. Prisons are full of dark tetrad folks. and a, But a lot of them are out and, out and about. We know that dark triad people are successful business people. Um, they can actually succeed quite brilliantly in the world because they're willing to use people. They're very manipulative. They don't care. They'll make big risky decisions because they're not afraid. So it's, it's complicated and it is dark. And I believe, I hope someday they expand that dark tetrad theory one step further with a dark pentagon, pentad, whatever you call it, <laughs> and bring paranoia into the mix. Because people who are like that, are they're very suspicious. They think everyone's out to get them. They feel like there's a target on their back. And that that chronic suspiciousness means they're very provocative and reactive. Like, what are you, what are you looking at me for? 
you better watch out. I, I know you got it in for me. And they're just, and they'll kind of start going at people that way. So I, I do think paranoia is in that mix too. Right. Yeah. Seems- so it's dark. This is, this is, some people get into relationships like this. Again, Dirty John was a great example of that. But, um, but there's, you know, people will say, when I first met this person, they were charming, they were this, they were that. <clears throat> but the cracks on this will start showing pretty early. You know, and these are relationships we often term as coercively controlling relationships, characterized by fear and menace and a isolation and stealing of a person's freedoms. So we're, we see this in domestically violent relationships all the time. Yeah. Ooh, and so the four sides tetrad, then, yeah. tetrad must be like the the hardest. Not, I mean, like, yeah, what does that... What does that actually result to then? The person that has the most epic control? It's a person who is menacing, isolating, uh, all the ultimate control. Absolutely the ultimate control. They don't, they have absolutely no care that they're harming somebody else. Even with that level of the dark tetrad, you're not seeing as much of the shame and the insecurity. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. So is it, is it psychop- psychopathy? Psychopathy, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Do they have shame and empathy in them? No. No, they can fake it though. Mm-hmm. I think the dangerous thing with psychopathy is that they know that people want you to be this sort of warm back and forth. Dirty John, he was very charming initially, really seemed like he was listening to her problems and he cared about her. So they know how to put on a show. They, they are able to figure out what it is people want and give them that thing to draw them close. That's the Machiavellianism. Mm. And then the, the sadism, you the said? The sadism. Yeah, the sadism. Um, how does that result then, if you don't mind breaking they that down? They will say terrible things to people unapologetically. They'll do hurtful things. They will um, hit them, harm them, steal from them. They'll get off, but they'll also get off on it. Like they'll um, say something cruel to someone and watch that person get devastated and almost feel gratified by it. They will watch someone fail. Um, their whole business fall apart or their relationship fall apart and they'll be like, you know, karma's bitch kind of thing. Like they'll be very, it's very dismissive of other people's pain. And one would argue that they may even want to um, uh, be the one who's creating that pain for another person. Would um, serial killers then kind of go under this Yeah, I would say a lot of serial killers probably are dark tetrad, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's so freaking fascinating. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 
86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about? That maybe not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. So now if, let's say, with everything we were speaking about, I really want to come full circle. Um, if you decide that you now actually want to leave this relationship. So you've, um, you've identified all their tactics that they're trying to, you know, put on you to potentially keep you in that relationship. Um, you, um, you're, you're, you're identifying all the gaslighting, like you actually see all the signs. What are the tactics that they're, they're, then a narcissist is going to lean into even more so to actually trap you so that you can potentially change your mind? So I've heard you mm. speak about like they're obviously going to do in the past. We've spoken about like smear campaigns and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. What have you seen be the thing that just when you think someone's got their foot out, they end up turning around and changing their mind? Uh, hoovering. So the narcissistic person going back to love bombing square one. Baby, I was so wrong. I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm about to lose you. The best thing that ever happened. I'm going to get therapy. I am going to, you know, you are worth fighting for, right? So they future fake. They say they're going to change. They say they see it all clearly. And what's so upsetting about that, it means that all along, they were hearing what their partner was asking for. They didn't do it, but they weaponize it and use it as a way to suck someone in. Because they're thinking, well, they heard me. So they must need, that must mean it, it, it registered. No, they heard it as something they could weaponize. That's different. So they'll often hoover and really try to draw someone in in that way. So that's a big one. And that often will lead people to do an about face, especially if there's stakes in the relationship, kids, shared finances, a history, culture, all of that. Big one. The other thing that can keep people stuck is when that's the sort of the hoovery part. The other part is the abuse part, where they start literally making this such a miserable experience. It's called post-separation abuse, that the person's too scared to leave. They may threaten them. They may hit them with so many legal, if it's a divorce, so much legal stuff um, that the person's like, I can't, I, I can't survive this. They'll make 
threats about custody. They'll make threats about money. They won't pay things they need to pay. The person may not have money for an attorney. And while someone else will say, it'll all work its way out when you're in the middle of it, that working its way out might be five, six, seven years down the road. Um, it's the, the narcissistic person, like you said, smear campaign. They'll mobilize everyone else. They'll tell other people terrible things about you. What many people said at this phase is they said, I just wanted it to stop. And the one way I could have made it stop was if I just went back in and gave them what they wanted, and which was control back, which is they went back into the relationship. So it's just so, again, post-separation abuse, scary, frightening, unsettling, that to leave was just too, too much. And so they, they, they would go in almost to stop the pain. What do you advise people in that situation? I would say it depends on how severe it is. Like I said, at the most extreme cases to work with the domestic violence program, if you are able to get uh, legal resources. And I know here in LA that there are organizations like Peace Over Violence where they have um, legal resources available. So if you contact them, they have people available to give legal, legal guidance. I can't say that for all. St- um, I'm on. I'm. I'm honored to be a part of Peace Over Violence's mm-hmm. advisory board, and they've been around for a long time. So you know, there these things exist in different places, but sometimes areas that are more rural, and um, they may not have the same kinds of support. So. Like I said, I can only speak to LA where something like that exists, but sometimes domestic violence programs can yield that. Countries like the UK, which are phenomenally ahead of the curve on understanding coercive control, mm-hmm. there are a lot of programs in the UK where their domestic violence programs are accounting for coercive control. They often have great professional guidance and people, advocates, attorneys, things like that get it there and can guide people through that process. But like I said, it's spotty in terms of where people can get that. And some, if you're lucky, LA, UK, you might be able to get it. Other regions, not so much, but you may need supports and information. If you're being hoovered back in, this where therapy can become important. A safe sounding board with a therapist who gets what this looks like. As a therapist, Lisa, I can never say to someone, don't go back, don't go back. But I can really help them say, okay, how are you feeling? you know, and help the client sort of sound it out. And sometimes they come to their own conclusion, like, who am I kidding? And if they do go back in having a good therapist say, okay, you know, what are we going to learn from this and walk them through it? So, but again, not everyone can always afford therapy and I'm aware of that. Um, And sorry, if you mind me asking, is that because legally you can't tell someone to go back or not to go back? So as a therapist, my role is not to give advice or guidance. My role is to work with the client to help them understand themselves so they are their own agent of change, right? The last thing I want anyone to do is feel like I need my therapist. No, you've got the tools. When you walk out here, you came in here with a box with a few tools in it. We're filling it the rest of the way up. We're teaching you how to use them. And the goal for me is that you go that you at some point would say, I, yeah, I'm good. I, I, I've got this now. I, I get it. But if, if they feel like I've got it, what is she going to say? What, what guidance will she give? They're not making it from an autonomous place. I'm a sounding board. I'm a safe space, but I'm not a, a, a an advice giver. I don't tell people what to do. Mm. Yeah. Should friends then, because I'm, and maybe I'm just projecting, but if I was in your head and you just see somebody who's mm-hmm. clearly been in an abusive relationship and you've heard all the stories and then they talk about going back, like in my head, I'd be like, I'd want to scream, like, don't go back. Remember, we're not talking about physical abuse. Like, let's, right, yes, I'm lifting yes, that out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Here's the problem. People in emotionally abusive relationships have been told sometimes their whole lives, but certainly in this relationship, what to do. The last thing I want therapies to be one more place where they're being given a command. Mm. So by getting to feeling, 
connecting to a sense of agency. And we use therapy as a place for a mental experiment. Like, let's, let's play this out. Let's, let's play out the scenario of you leaving. Because what will end up happening is they're going to, because you got to remember this, Lisa, what people forget about leaving an emotionally abusive relationship is it can be dangerous. Post-separation abuse is real. The stalking, the menacing, the texting, the emailing, the smear campaigns, the guilting, the passive aggressive, the on and on, like having a damn air tag put on your car or a tracker put on your car or stuff put on your front door, not knowing there's a camera here or there. It's bad. So, you know, we, uh, you, any of us who are doing this work clinically, we already know, like, I'm like, you got to get a sweep in, you got to get an electronic sweep done of your house, got to get one done of your car, make sure you, if you don't have an iPhone, you don't have, if you don't have an Apple phone, make sure you find out if there's any trackers, those, those discs are this mm. big, the biggest quarter. So make sure not, I mean, we really have to make sure there's no, get you get their computers over to like Geek Squad to get them scanned out, make sure there's no malware, like it's, it goes deep. Like we really have to work with people. So it's a, it's terrifying. And some people say, I don't have the stomach for this. So it's not that simple. It's, are they up for it? Do they have resources? Do they have a safe place to go? Do they have money? And the answer to for that for a lot of people is no. Do you suggest in those situations, especially if it's, um, if there is like the, just, I mean, I could just only imagine how that would feel that someone's like coming after you, really trying to put a smear campaign out. You know, you've built this reputation, you're a good person. And this other person who, you know, you've said in the past and you've said multiple times, even in this episode, is that they're very charismatic. Like yeah. a lot of people do actually really mm-hmm. um, gravitate mm-hmm. towards narcissists. So you don't necessarily see all sides of them. Mm-hmm. Um in that situation, do you then suggest that people do things incognito, like on the side, like kind of like slowly leave a partner? Like, is that? That's a good question. So it, it becomes, you know, it was something we call in psychology, successive approximations, right? You're not going to go from I'm in an emotionally abusive relationship to packing boxes just like that. Mm. And one thing I've often, you know, suggested to clients, we use therapy as a place to mentally play it out, Right. And the second is we do small things. I'm like, whatever you can get documents wise, I need you to start scanning this stuff. We need to get this on a thumb drive and we need to get that thumb drive out of the house because you need, you're going to need this stuff. And if you can't get it, slowly get a couple of your grandmother's earrings, things that aren't community property, things that clearly, again, you cannot take anything out of that house that is shared. If you're married, share mm-hmm. joint property. So, But a thing like you're thinking, okay, the last thing I want is to be locked out of this house and I can't have my kid's baby shoes or something like that. Put that stuff away someplace carefully if you think you're going to need to be getting out of this. And again, check your devices for stuff too. I mean, it's it's a it, with the cloud and all this and people on family accounts, your phone is as good as a tracking device. If you're on a family plan, I promise you that that narcissistic person knows where you are all the time. So be careful. So if you go in for a legal consultation to an attorney, they don't see you pulling up to that office in Century City. Leave the phone behind. Give it to a friend, get a burner, do something so you can be in touch with people that day. But that phone isn't following you all over creation. But if it's a shared car, odds are it has a tracker on it too. So it's really about, um, it's, it's about preparation. It's about being realistic. It's about tiny little steps. For some people, even thinking about the thought of leaving is a big deal. Because I have to tell you, the minute they can, the first time a person says to me, I need to get out of this. I was like, I'm like, checkmate. We've got this. Now we got about 55 moves to that checkmate. But now I, I can see the game, 
right? And so the once they say it, it's not like, great, let's go. I'll say, okay, talk to me. How are you feeling? How are you feeling in your body? And they'll say, my God, I'm panicking. Like, We're just talking about it here. So the mental experiment slowly. So they've now vocalized that there could be a future outside of this relationship. Then it's painstaking work. Again, somatically connected, connected to their own psychology, their feelings, their thoughts, the practicalities. Listen, Lisa, some people are practical. They're like, I am not sharing custody of these children. And they, they're like, at the stroke of midnight, when my youngest child turns 18, I'm filing those papers. And they do. And they literally, their kid's 18th birthday, they say to the attorney, pull the trigger. Here we go. And that's because they've done the steps of... They've done work. all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So actually, if you don't mind taking me through that, so you just said... It depends so on the situation. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the situation. It's going to be different for everyone. You know, if it's marital situation, it gets a little more tricky. It's going to be different in every state, every province, every country. So there's no uniform kind of mm -hmm. piece here. But it's really, I think, more than anything, thinking it through, what would this mean to you? In terms of the other practicalities, it could be if there are documents you know that you might need someday, if you were to go, copies of passports, things like that, birth certificates, the little glitches that you're like, you do not want, because getting those little pieces of paper, should the two of you no longer live in the same house and it's a partner, could take forever. So little things like that, getting organized, having it all in one place, getting it on a thumb drive. Because if they decide to throw your computer on the ground and smash it, that's going to be a problem. So getting it on a thumb drive, getting it out of there, those little, little kinds of things that can help you feel like, okay, if this really continues to get south, there go south, there's a path forward mm. for, for, for me to kind of safely get out of this. Um, it could, you know, and like I said, what I don't want to veer too much into is sort of the domestic violence safety plan yeah. here, because that's a very different animal of go bags and safe places to go and cash. And that's a different conversation. So I'm really trying to stay in the people or in something that was saying this is becoming untenable, but I'm not ready to go yet. But should I be ready to go? What would I, you know, what would I need to know? But those sorts of like little bits and pieces that mean that if the time comes and you're like, I'm out and you're the one who's going to physically leave, some of that is possible. But I really think the deeper work is in therapy for what does leaving mean? Some people will say, my parents were divorced. I vowed I'd never get divorced. And here I am. For some people, it would be they have their own abandonment wounds that are thinking like, well, what if the minute I leave, they meet someone new or they're leaving because they feel like their partner is being sort of inappropriate or shady with someone new. Like, I don't want it to be so easy for him to go with the new person. It's complicated. So having a place to un, sort of unbraid some of that stuff, but I think mentally playing it out. Like, what would this look like for me? What am I scared of? How would I feel? How would I cope? Becomes, a, it's sort of something a person plays out over and over again. Worst case models, best case models, all of that. And then it's going to land someplace in the middle, most likely. Well, that's so powerful there to think about because I'm so such a tactical person when I'm feeling emotional mm -hmm. or like I'm feeling helpless is the mm -hmm. truth. To have something to go back to that can be almost like a guiding source. Like I really mm -hmm. love that breakdown that you just gave mm -hmm. of um, how do I feel? What would mm -hmm. leaving look like? Mm -hmm. um, and then coming up with those tactical mm -hmm. steps. Um, did you ever see the movie um, Sleeping with the Enemy? 
oh god I watched that as a kid and that just haunted me um and just thinking through how she really like had these massive plans Mm -hmm. behind his back and then the fear of getting caught as you're having these plans so how how many of your clients and what do you advise like as they're processing this they still haven't haven't made a move yet obviously not talking about Mm -hmm. physical abuse but maybe I want to leave this relationship how many of them fear talking to you about that honesty or talking to you about leaving because of the fear that maybe their partner finds out and how many how many people stop vocalizing maybe to their friends or to the people around them that they're struggling in a relationship because they're so worried about that getting out well i think it's less so in therapy because they know that that it's a confidential space right. that no one's going to you know that that no one will um know about but the um but the uh with friends and others, that's a very reasonable fear. And I think that people want to be careful about even within their own world, especially if it's a relationship they've been in a long time and there's more intricate links mm-hmm. of friendships and your partner is friends with their, them and all this other stuff. You want to be careful about understanding all of that. I think a lot of people are afraid that their their plan could be found out. Again, we're not talking about severe yeah. domestic abuse, that Absolutely. kind of thing. We're really talking about people who are in emotionally abusive, classic, sort of classically narcissistically abusive situations. One fear people have is that, okay, they're going to figure out what I'm up to and then they're going to start their hoovering process. They're going to be really nice and that's just going to make this harder. I've had numerous clients say to me, I just want them to stay terrible for a really long time so this will Uh feel easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's part of the fear of... Saying the fear anything. of them, maybe I'm wrong. The big fear people have is like, especially if it's been a long time, maybe I'm wrong. Some people are afraid of dating. So they're saying, okay, this is the devil I know. Do I really want to put myself out there? And I say, you know what? Someplace between being in this relationship and a new person is this whole beautiful world mm-hmm. called you being on your own and figuring out who you are. And that I, I think it's people, you know, already going into the, how am I going to meet someone new? I'm like, that's not even on the radar right now. Where, you know, if indeed you're going to leave this, this is about you getting back to who you really are subjectively. Who are you? And taking ownership of that. Um, and then and only then. And I always, you know me, I put people, I tell 12 months, 12 months off if you've been to one of these relationships, nothing. No kiss, no sex, no flirt, no dating app, no date, no nothing. I met the perfect person. I think they're, they'll be there in nine months. If they're not, then they weren't the perfect person. Mm. No. That's what I was going to ask. How many people need to process? Like, why do they, why do they fear being alone? And that being with somebody who's toxic is actually better than being alone. Well, I don't think people have always processed that fear of being alone. And it's complicated, right? There's sometimes people will say, Oh my gosh, like when they're out of town, I'm so much happier. So you're alone. They're on a business trip. You're telling me you're happier. So there's small A alone and there's big A alone, right? Small A alone is they're out of town for three days and I get to have the dog in the bed with me. Big A alone is you're single and you don't have your person. That's what I want to understand the meaning of. Because you're saying you love when they're gone, but there's a bigger existential issue of what it means. And again, I think... One thing I'm happy about in the world is we're no longer fetishizing people being in relationships like, ooh, your life's going to be so much better. I just read an interesting article in The Atlantic that said people who are married are generally happier, which I found fascinating. I would say probably people who are happily married are generally happier. We've got to create a world where people feel whole within themselves and 
then and that and the enhancement in their life is their relationship. But I think that from a pretty early age, we sell people a bill of goods of love stories and and mm. pairing off and dyads. We are though now millennials and the generation of the Gen Xs. We're now going to start seeing generations where probably the rate of non-marriage might be equal or higher than marriage. You know, so I think that that's to me strangely enough. I'm going to say that's promising. I don't think it's that young people and people coming into adulthood aren't going to get into relationships. They're going to be playing by a different set of rules and fluidity. Mm. But I think above all else, teaching people how to be comfortable with their own company. They may say, listen, I love being at a party. I love other people. Great, great. But to to enjoy your solitude as much as you enjoy being with other people, but never feeling that you have to sell your soul to avoid being alone. That's the mm. piece that we're trying to avoid. So helping people cultivate that sense of... Um, that sense of being alone and loving it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Yeah, I love that. And then more, now that your work has just spanned so much now and you're reaching so many people around the world, are you noticing now that... Um, now that you can identify narcissists more and now more people can identify narcissists, are there more narcissists or are we creating more narcissists? It's messy, right? There have always been narcissistic people since, I mean, since I think documented history, they were our leaders mm -hmm. and they're people in the history books, right? These are the people who are dominant and controlling and got their way and dictators and pick it, you know, pick someone in history. Odds are if they're in the history book, they might've been narcissistic, mm -hmm. right? So I think it's always been a problem. Um, and I think now we have a name for it. You got to remember the term's only been around as it applies to human beings for about maybe a hundred, maybe 120 years on the long side. So it's a relatively new construct, right? I think that we just assumed that there were people who were the way they were. And, and because we, it's, the world has always been so sort of traditional, patriarchal, all of that's like, well, that's just how they are. They're the boss, right? Um, father knows best and all that nonsense. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we are now shedding light on what's acceptable behavior in a relationship. Mm. And now that that's, and, and I still don't think we're there. I think a lot of people still think, well, they have a lot of money or oh, they're really creative or, well, they're a genius. And maybe this goes along with it. I said, you could be a genius, right? It doesn't mean you have to be in a relationship with them. They're mistreating you. I don't care if they're a genius. I don't care if they're a trillionaire. I don't care if they're the greatest artist that ever lived. It's unacceptable. And we often use those kinds of qualities to excuse it. And we're very much in a time where it's the real cult of status and hip cred and all of that. So those things, narcissistic people are stronger and all those things. So I don't know if there's more. I think the only reason I'd say probably, possibly is social media. I think social media, internet, internet fame, all of that has definitely um, ramped it up. It, being seen is everything, right? So everyone's frame of reference has become themselves. And if it's too much themselves and they're not cultivating 
sort of the empathy, the empathic presence with other people. Um, there could be a greater entitlement fostered in that. People aren't regulating themselves as well. I think we tell too many kids how they're more special than everybody else, and that's creating it too. I think parenting practices probably have gone a little bit more too much to the mm. permissive direction. And so I think it's a lot of things are competing. There's always been narcissists. I, I just think that what's happening is now we're more aware of what is not okay in a relationship and we're not excusing it. Mm. Why am I hearing more than of, I'm just going to say females because obviously I have a very female-oriented show, um, women will say that their partner, usually the guy, has like, oh my God, a lot of women have had experiences now with narcissistic men. But a lot of people also say that when they're talking about their parents, that it's usually the mother that's a narcissist. <laughs> Yeah. So it blows up that myth that narcissism is almost exclusively men. Again, mm. a lot of people do have invalidating, cruel, dismissive, unempathic, manipulative mothers and who may very well have had those traits since their childhood all the way up. So obviously if a woman is hetero and she had a mom and now she's got a relationship, A, there's a vulnerability. Having a mom like that could leave a daughter feeling not enough, um, unlovable, uncherishable, unattractive. Narcissistic mothers are notorious about commenting about their daughter's weight, their daughter's appearance, which are major boundary violations, what they eat, all of that, right? So it, it really sets a girl up to feel not enough. And who better than to take advantage of that than a narcissistic partner who's basically mirroring the, um, the propaganda that this person was delivered as a child? Feels familiar. Are you more likely then to be uh, to get uh, is it trauma bonded with a narcissist if you've had a narcissistic mother? Parents, not just sorry, mother, yeah, either, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I normally hear about it as mothers though, mm -hmm. and maybe again that's just like the funnel that I get the messaging from. But again, it's the the narcissist, the the parent, it's typically mm -hmm. the mother is a narcissist, but yet the partner is typically the the yeah. Male. I mean, I think that's a unique self selection. Because I have to say, having worked in this, yeah. I hear it just as much me. Just as much father, I think a narcissistic mother is more impactful. Does that make mm. sense? Because a mother is often a primary caregiver for a daughter, maybe more significant parent. Um, if a family has a dissolution, you're more likely to have been raised by the mother. So I think all of those things might make the presence of the mother more salient, honestly. Mm. Yeah. And are the traits different then? So they, they appear in the same, because to your point where you were saying um, a mother more likely in, um, insult her daughter's like weight and her appearance, mm -hmm. um, would that be the same if they had a son? Um, I think that a narcissistic mother with a son, in all cases, I think they're going to manipulate, why don't you spend more time with me? Or why do you ask so much for me? Or you don't, under, you don't recognize all the things I did for you. I gave up so much for you. Mm. Um, lots of victimization. I think with a girl, it might be more, or daughter, might be more weight and shape stuff because a narcissistic mother's probably going to have that obsession herself. Mm. Yeah, so it's just a projection of that stuff onto the on the same gender daughter. Versus if it was the father that was a narcissist. Father might be, um, might comment on weight and shape, depends on whatever his status orientation is. Maybe negating, maybe minimizing, maybe all the, you know, all the usual narcissistic dynamics. Again, it's all like sort of what is salient to that parent. A lot of narcissistic parents care desperately what their parents, what their children look like mm. physically to the world. Are they attractive? Are they sporty? Are they going to the right college? Are they this? Are they that? So they'll, they'll invest a lot of their focus 
on that child's appearance. Mm. And would it be hard then to to leave a narcissistic relationship if you have a narcissistic parent because it's so Mm -hmm. intertwined in almost like who you are? Yeah, because the trauma bonding is going to be more potent, right? Because as a child, that child who had an invalidating parent had to learn to make the excuses and the justifications for that parent over and over again. Because a child's never going to say, oh, I have a narcissistic parent. Mm-hmm. They're not even going to think their parent's a bad person because that would put them at risk of, well, then who's going to take care of me? Mm-hmm. So the child internalizes all of the blame and all of that on themselves. I did something wrong. I need to be better. I need to keep my room cleaner. I need to not make a fuss. Um, and they they kind of they'll really make it about themselves. In some cases, the kid will rebel, but in most cases, they'll often internalize. And so that pattern will then jump into adulthood. Mm. And they never got an accurate sense of who they were. If you have a narcissistic parent, you don't get to fully form your identity because your identity is fully in the service of the parent. It's to soothe them. It's to tell them they're great. It's to never take the spotlight away. It's to be in their service. It's to win them over. So your entire identity is based on being for another. Mm. So how do you heal from that then? That's a longer path. Yeah. I mean, that's a longer path, right? It's a um, it's a going it's it's a lot of its education, educating a person about these patterns. It's about cutting through the guilt and shame. Some people feel damaged by it, depending on how severe the narcissism of the parent was. Some people have what we know call a complex trauma, which requires much more trauma-informed approaches like EMDR, somatic interventions, that kind of thing. It's a much more intense mm. sort of focus. Yeah. And would you advise then someone needs to do that work to really heal as an adult and to find a healthy relationship as an adult? If they had narcissistic parents? Yeah. I think it's important because I think otherwise the programming puts a person at risk for choosing badly. But I'll say that, Lisa, and I know people who had deeply narcissistic parents and ended up choosing Using wonderful partners. Mm. Some of them said it was sheer luck that they did. Some of them said it was sheer force of, well, they're like, I'm just picking the opposite of this parent. Um, more often than not, they're more likely to end up in a relationship where they're invalidated. But I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, a sentence where you're, it's your destiny. You're stuck with that. I think some people make it happen by luck, by ha- happenstance, by hard work. Um, but it definitely ups the risk. Mm. And yeah. you really do think it's luck? I do think it's luck. Really? I think a lot of good relationship stuff is luck. And this is why people in happy relationships should never weigh in on the relationships of other people. I very much, I think people with happy relationships need to shut their mouths, <laughs> step the hell out, and let the people with the tough relationships get oh, up there and be the ones to, we're so happy. And this is what we do. Shut up. Just <laughs> shut up. You know, just I almost like I went to a liquor store and I bought a lottery ticket. So let me talk to you about financial management. I'm like, fool, you walked to a liquor store, bought a lottery ticket, you got lucky. I don't want to hear your version of financial management. So it's I, I it, there's nothing I take more umbrage at is happily married people who talk about their relationship. It is so, and it really messes with the heads of narcissistic people. Oh. We just have a laugh at their expense. I'm mm. like, come on, yeah. I think that it, there's a lot of luck. I think that listen, there are people out there. Are there some people who say I met a good person and I was bored by them? Sure, but that's that's a smaller number than you'd think. And I think for many, many people, there's a lot of societal pressure to get into a relationship. People are not taught what is healthy. They're not taught how to choose a partner. If we spent as much time as we do on courses that these kids are never going to use and we put it into really frank conversations about what's acceptable in a relationship, about partner choice, about all of that, but a lot of it's luck. And I'll tell you this. I've worked with clients. I've worked with more than a few clients who have been married 40, 45, 50 years, right? Terrible. 50 years of sheer freaking hell, of invalidation, of infidelity, of betrayal. Awful. 
and they had peers who were married. And they look back at the original period of getting in the relationship. There's nothing really that sinister. In fact, if anything, they're like, yeah, this person was just really driven in their career. And I kind of came from a more financially precarious place. So I was happy about this. And they looked at their friends and they said, it was luck. It was luck. They chose the nice guy. I chose a guy who I thought was a nice guy and wasn't a nice guy. And the, the, again, it's 50 years ago. The, the, conversation around divorce was a lot different. Sometimes it's, it's the, in, for a narcissistic person too, how they, how they're succeeding in the world can also have a lot to do with how they are as a partner. So if for the narcissistic person, if their life goes well, they work hard and they make money, that can often make them a little more bearable. They're probably still going to cheat on you, but a little more bearable than the always failing narcissist who's not getting promoted. The vulnerable narcissist, those victimized narcissists, they have more trouble at work. And so they, then they have the problem of lack of resource and all that other stuff. But I think there's a lot of luck in it. I really, really do. A person meets someone and the timing was right and they meet and it's good and they stick it out and da, la, 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 blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of luck. And I think that that's where I think that I take, I take umbrage of the people who found someone. They're like, we have all the secrets. I'm like, you don't have any damn secrets. So stop. No more. I just tell my clients to not listen to it. I'm like, just take, I'm like, right now together, we're deleting this app off your phone. So you don't listen to this anymore. Yeah. And they stop and they say it makes a big and that difference. Fills yeah. In there. Yeah. Um, what makes you say that they'll probably cheat? You just, as you... rich narcissistic people almost always cheat. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that there tend to be grandiose narcissists and grandiose narcissistic people. They're very, um, fantastical in their whole conceptions of love. And so they get swept away very easily. They're very impulsive. And so they are, um, they're off, they're off on the weekend and someone catches their eye. And again, they feel entitled to what they want. They're grandiose enough to think they won't get caught. They're grandiose enough to think, oh my God, this could be a once in a lifetime, such and such. And they don't have empathy. So they're not thinking about how it would hurt someone else. That to me is a cheating cocktail right there mm-hmm. and say that's a recipe for disaster mm-hmm. well dr Armini, as always you have so much value like i could literally just ask you questions until like everyone's gone home and i'm still here asking you questions um where can people find you all the amazing work that you're oh, putting out you. on narcissism well and- please go to my website drromany.com you'll find everything there go to my youtube Every day, some new wacky insight about these relationships and about healing from them. I have a podcast, Navigating Narcissism, great conversations with people who have been through narcissistic relationships and people who have insights on how sort of some tools people can have to cope better with them and what we know about how these, how people with these personalities, how these relationships work. Um, I have a healing program. So people really want to do a deep dive into healing from narcissistic abuse. We have a healing program. If you go to my website, my Instagram, it's all there. And it's, it's a, a great way. We have a great community, thousands of people, monthly workshops, monthly Q and A's, all kinds of great resources. So there's that happening. I have books. I have a new book coming out in February, which we'll talk about. And um, yeah, I mean, it's all there. Just go to the website. You'll find it all in one place. 